I want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and we have the ETF Whisperer on the show. Can we call you that, Eric? I've been called worse. I'll take it. What's your proper title at Bloomberg? Is it Head of ETF Insights or Research? Close enough. It's um, Senior ETF Analyst and Team Leader of this sort of ETF fund team. Yeah. Eric Balchunas probably knows more about ETFs than I know about Italian specialty meats and, and mustaches. There's no doubt about that. We are close followers of his at the block. He's been tweeting prolifically. Um, he's got a special love for Twitter, and he has been tweeting about these Canadian Bitcoin ETFs. Um, we were DMing about this earlier in the week, the rate at which these things are growing their AUM the rate at which the volumes have, have surged just, I think it's been like a week or so, has been incredible to you. We've been talking about this on Twitter DM. You've never seen anything like this in the more than a decade that you've been covering the space. Um, walk us through uh, what the sort of debut of these few products have looked like. I think we have two, right? We have the Ibit, Ebit and the um, Prosper, I think it's called, Purpose. That's yeah, right. the Purpose one is the ticker's BTCC. And they have a U.S. dollar and a Canadian dollar share class, um, but it doesn't even matter. You group them together, the Canadian one is much bigger. But you know, when a new launch, a new ETF launch hits the scene in the U.S. or in Canada, anywhere, that ETF will typically, I don't know, trade between five million and maybe thirty million. Yeah, occasionally there's a there's one that trades higher than that, but that would rank it, you know, maybe six hundredth or eight hundredth of the most mm-hmm. traded that day. That's a normal launch, even a successful launch. This ETF launched and became the most traded ETF on day one. That would be like if an ETF launched here and traded more than SPY, which trades about $20 billion a day. And that would be Which insane. has never happened. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think a new ETF is cracked no, in the top never happened. 200. Is this kind of like, a, oh, you know, it's Canada. So, you know, you, you've had like this history of them bringing to market cannabis ETFs, and, and they're kind of always first to uh, market with some of these these more nascent assets or industries. Even if you compare it to cannabis up in Canada, what's the debuts? What have the debuts look like? Yeah, I mean, Canada, I mean, they, they party. I mean, <laughs> they're very yeah. liberal up there, yeah. And they've launched or perhaps we're too conservative uh, because there's some, a lot of this stuff in Europe too. Europe and Canada are way ahead of the U.S. But in Canada, they beat us with the first ETF, even though the idea was hatched here. Uh, they beat us with the first bond ETF, the first SPAC ETF, the first marijuana ETF, the first currency hedged ETF, and lately the first psychedelic ETF, which tracks the shroom sector, which I guarantee you will see one here. And then now the Bitcoin ETF. We had wrote a note about, it, I don't know, two years ago saying Canada will probably be first. And that will be the first step to where we think U.S. will will include because there's a definite pattern between Canada launching before the U.S. And I don't know what it is. I think that when there's European Bitcoin ETFs and ETNs, they call them ETPs over there, but they've been around for five years. 
but it's really far away. The one that's oldest is an ETN, and perhaps it's just not close enough to the SEC. But they traded fine. I thought that should have been a fair incubator for the SEC. But Canada is like right up there. It's almost like a neighboring state. And the ability for people to talk about it in U.S. hours, it just becomes, I think, much more present for the SEC. And and perhaps that by osmosis, that's how that works, where the SEC will follow Canada because it's so close. It's a bigger stamp of approval than, you know, these Nordic ETNs, which kind of raises a, a question that I've always thought about and have have struggled with. Are there any like significant differences between an exchange traded product, which we see a number of crypto ETPs and an ETF like structurally, or are they basically the same? Yeah. I mean, so what we tend to do is put ETFs and ETNs under the umbrella of ETP. Um, So, and in Europe, they have something called ETCs, exchange traded commodities. The main thing, I don't think people need to worry about it too much. I think the main thing with uh, an ETP in the US is, okay, what is this ETP? Is an ETN? Those are a little different. They're notes and they're backed by the by the issuer. But outside of ETNs, every other ETF is physically backed. In other words, they invest what they are invested in. And that's important. And they also have the creation redemption feature, which is really the most important thing here that people need to know. So when we say ETP, ETF, Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, sometimes incorrect. But the main thing is that you can do creation redemption, which allows for arbitrage. Because arbitrage, while sounding like a you know, Wall Street-y, perhaps even negative word, is awesome. Because it allows bit market makers a lot of money to naturally, if the price or the NAV become too far apart, they can just arbit. And it's a risk-free trade. And so that natural incentive to do that risk-free trade keeps the price close to the NAV. And that is the beauty of the ETF. And that's what people want. I don't think they're necessarily thinking that Bitcoin will always go up, but I think they don't want any other elements besides to be have a fair deal. I bought it here, it tracked Bitcoin, and okay, I lost money, but it tracked it. With something that doesn't have that creation of redemption, like a closed-end fund or GBTC, you could actually lose money even though Bitcoin went up. And that's because there's a premium in it or mm. a discount. And that ETFs remove the third element. And it's just sort of straight up getting largely what it's worth, uh, give or take a little of the effort that is it is required to serve it up. So I think Bitcoin ETF would probably trade at like a 30 to 50 basis point premium uh, because of that you know, need, uh, uh, the, the need for the arbitrage to kick in. It would have to be a little worth it for the market maker. So it might live at that. That's what the Canada one looks to be trading at. But it couldn't be tighter than that because the U.S. market makers are very wealthy, very smart, very good, and they're in competition with, with one another. So ultimately, I think an ETF in the U.S. introduces the best competition, the richest market makers, and the best structure to give investors the best possible deal. And that's why U.S. ETF is something we, we think should happen. Mm-hmm. When are we going to get a mustache ETF? <laughs> um. I don't know. Uh, that would be interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I, look, I always say there's an 18-month delay between satire and reality with ETFs. There's some stuff that would have sounded crazy that there's now reality. And by the way, on a side note, I got to say, I'm a big fan of your mustache. Thank you. And you know, I think it was the early days of the pandemic, seeing you post these pictures, or maybe it was last year, but seeing you post these pictures from like a, like a pool... Uh, and you even 
you even did like a Hawaiian shirt. Um, the, <laughs> the poses were were half the battle. The mustache was half, and then the the way you posed was the other half. And I thought it was it was like artwork, man. You were you you have something. You capture something with these this sort of like I, I, I photos. Think, I think 70% of my engagement comes from pictures of me in Hawaiian shirts with a mustache, and the other 30% is the actual stuff I write about <laughs> on a daily basis. So I don't know if that's an indication I need to go full-time into modeling. Might be. <laughs> could be. It's also um, just your- But I'm flattered. You um, look like you're having a really good time too. Um, yeah, I don't know. There was something about it, but it also harkened back to the '80s. I know, like my dad had a mustache, and um, so <laughs> every I've dad seen did. Yeah, every dad did. And I have a mustache story for you. In 2006, ish, I went to the Sundance Film Festival, and I saw <laughs> like that's where all the like, hipsters, movie people are. And I saw like a couple mustaches, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, they're coming back." So I, I grew a mustache. <laughs> this, is, this is way before Movember or all that. So I walk into the office with my mustache because I had two weeks off, enough time to grow it, and I grow hair like a werewolf. And I walk mm-hmm. in, and it was a it was drama. People didn't know what was going on. Like this is like a an office that it's like the show, the office where everybody knows each other. Yeah. And I remember the set. I, everybody was like coming over to see it and look at it, and they'd be like, "Oh wow!" And it, it got around that I that there was this mustache in the office, and the whole thing was just that was outrageous. And the second day I walk in. Somebody had pasted a Cadillac Man movie poster on my terminal screen, <laughs> and I would hear Keith Hernandez, Freddie Mercury. It got really crazy, so I, I actually shaved it because it was too much of a distraction. But I tried, man. I gave it a good yeah. like ten days. Geraldo Rivera Jr. <laughs> over there at, in the earlier your earlier days. Ryan, who's listening in, is probably um, know that I'm excited to talk about my favorite subject, which is myself. Um, so appreciate you bringing up the stat. <laughs> <laughs> I was pissed, Frank, that you shaved your stash last summer. Yeah. I mean, it was the perfect growth hack. Yeah, it Flipped really was. On a stash. It's like you can't beat that. It, and it's great marketing. So once we once I grew it, I was like, we need to change all of the marketing materials for the show to images with me with the mustache. I also lost a shit ton of weight. Um, so I was like, we got we got to change all the images everywhere. <laughs> so anyway, back to back to uh, the ETF world. You, you brought up a funny point about how. And this is, I think, something that can be applied to the broader market. You know, the meme world and reality have kind of meshed together into one alternative reality, alternate reality in which, you know, we can have funds tied to anything. Shrooms are in Canada. Shrooms could come here. Um, When we look at what's going on with like GameStop and the like, are there some weird funds you see coming to market that are tied to some of that nonsense? Is there going to be a Wall Street bet fund. I don't know if that's happened already. I, I'm surprised if it hasn't, that it's not there yet. Um, I, I've heard some people looking into it. I, I think Wall Street bets could be a term that's a little too uh, short term. I think what we probably will see is a meme stock ETF. That word meme yeah. is here to stay. Um, and ultimately what this could do is just, I think it should be active. Something that just adjusts quickly to whatever's going on. And is able to go deep into message boards and follow some of those memes, you know. And if it outperforms, it might look like a genius idea. Um, it could fail. Who knows? But there's been a lot of ETFs like that launched. Uh, there's been, you know, if you think about it, there's been ETFs track 13F filings from hedge funds. Many of mm-hmm. those. There's ETFs that track insider changes for holdings. 
So there's ETFs to track like what the professional class is doing with stocks. But it, what's interesting to us is that it used to be people would track what hedge funds are doing in stocks and copy them. Now hedge funds are tracking and copying what retail's doing. So it, to me, it's, it sounds goofy, but it kind of is almost natural given some of the other ETFs we've seen launched. There is one that was launched but failed and is getting being resurrected. We've been called a Lazarus list. It's the buzz. And this ETF is, uh, goes into Twitter and more high-end. It's more of a classy meme ETF because it's really looking at social media sentiment, cash tags, and it invests in the stocks that are sort of heating up on social media. And we found it interesting, my colleague Athanasios especially, it was beating everything. It beat the 13F, it beat the Insider Holdings, um, it beat the Sanford Bernstein Research ETF, and it was just looking at Twitter. So this ETF actually was ahead of this whole thing a little bit. But nobody bought it. It was a small issuer, though, and and maybe it just didn't have the distribution or people didn't take it seriously. But it's being re-brought out again by Van Eck uh, with the ticker with just an extra Z, so B-U-Z-Z. But I did talk to them, and that one wouldn't have caught GameStop. So there is a social sentiment ETF coming out, Buzz. That's reality. A meme ETF has not been filed. I don't know. But my spidey sense tells me there will be one filed. Yeah, I think you tweeted about it the other day, setting the over-under on a mean ETF filing within, you know, the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I just, um, they act fast in the ETF world. You think about something like that. And like, as a Bitcoin person, it's like, it's just so frustrating. Like there can be a meme ETF, but the SEC is not okay with something that just tracks this pretty well established now, you know, alternative currency. Yeah. I think it's a new, it's a digital asset is a, new asset class, essentially. And it is a little different, but I, I hear you. Um, we did a story, or I wrote a Bloomberg opinion column about five reasons the SEC should approve it. One of those reasons was there's 50 ETFs I could count that are more volatile. And a couple of them were approved this year, you know, or in the past year mm-hmm. that are more volatile than a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, my feeling on the SEC, and this is just my personal feeling, is that um, you know, they had some issues with leverage ETFs back in twenty, the early 2010s, and then they had XIV, and they've had a couple of these like PR nightmares with some products that got approved, and I, I think they, re- they recoiled a little bit and had become more conservative, and it might not seem that way, but just anything that holds stocks is just not going to be that big of a deal. It could go down, but it, Bitcoin, they worry, okay, what if somebody hacks it and we're on the front page of the FT as, as not have do- done our job? That's why the Canada one, I think, is very important. It gives them a little cover. It's like, hey, this thing up here has a lot of assets. Now we're now all the global regulators are kind of in it together. Whereas before, if they approved it, like when the Winklevoss filed, by the way, we looked at the Winklevoss ETF. They filed in 2013. Bitcoin was trading at, I want to say it was like $99. <laughs> That's how early they were. Boy, that would have been an investment if, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you could have. That, that ETF, if they had approved, Dude. say, six months after they filed, I truly believe the Winklevoss ETF would be probably, it might be $100 billion at this point. They got to be pretty frustrated by that. Wow. But ultimately, I do think they'll approve one. Yeah, I mean, if you can get um, $50 billion in all these other ETFs globally, the U.S. is a monster market. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's definitely possible. Uh, that that could have happened. The gold ETFs in the U.S. have about a hundred billion. I think Bitcoin is probably on that level. There's going to be like a, a a rush to be the first. Like that's kind of the most important thing, right? Yeah. And speaking of mustaches, 
Burt Reynolds, Cannonball Run, is my metaphor. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a movie about a race of who can May get he the- rest in peace. May he rest in peace, yes. Probably top 10 mustache He's of dead. all time, by the way. Yeah, he died, I think. He had a nice comeback with Boogie Nights, but his main thing was in the 80s. But there was a movie called Cannonball Run, which I saw as a kid, and I loved it. It was about all these a race from New York to L.A., and it was obviously un- mm-hmm. underground. Whoever got there first won. Some people tried an ambulance. Some people tried a Ferrari. Some people dressed as priests so they wouldn't get like pulled over. <laughs> and whoever gets to L.A. Get the, gets the money. And I, I just feel the same vibes. There has been a lot of money spent, a lot of filings that will tweak something here, try something different. Oh, we'll use a little bit of futures. All of this is just to see if they can just get it through the SEC. At the end of the day, though, I think it's going to come down to, to lawyers, relationships, and that's what helped Purpose come out first in Canada. But the question is, will they pick one? If they pick one, they're literally going to make a company into like multimillionaires just like that. I've never seen them play kingmaker wow. like this. It's normally an ETF is filed way before there's even hardly any in- knowledge of the demand. It's like, well, yeah, I launch it, and oh, it worked. But this is like, we know it's going to work. It'll instantly see flows, um, and you will make that company very rich. And so what do they do? Um, so I think they need to approve all of them, right? Or, or Probably. They probably have to get all the filers together and go, look, we have a situation here. <laughs> Here's what we need in the prospectus. <laughs> do you have some insurance, this, that, and the other? And if they check all those boxes, I think they just release seven or eight at the same time or within the same week. I That's probably what what they'll do but i don't know it's this is why it's such a fascinating story we don't know the ending eric i'm I'm curious for those that aren't as in tune with you know the the actual process for an etf approval in both canada and the u.s i'm wondering one what is the biggest difference in canada between the two not only on like timelines and loopholes that that you have to go through but i'm also curious as to what's the biggest difference between the two countries approval processes and why was Canada able to push this through well I you know the Canada had, I believe I this don't quote me on this I believe had expressed similar uh, feelings towards the Bitcoin market being um, prone to manipulation and whatnot earlier and I don't know they just changed their mind I mean I think it's that simple and then once the regulator changes their mind we saw the purpose filing came in on a Tuesday and they approved it on a Wednesday so my guess is they told the issuer, we're ready. And so I believe the same thing is going to happen here because while there have been some new filings in the U.S., there hasn't been a 19B4, which is an important filing that says, okay, now the SEC is on the clock. And my guess is we haven't seen that because the issuers are probably just sort of like, look, um, if the SEC is ready, they'll tell us. And then they'll start go through the process, which costs a lot of money to get those filings in. This is all very unusual, I'll be honest. Normally, you just file an ETF. and I don't know, in three months or so, they approve it <laughs> because it's usually like fixed income or equities. Like the ARC space ETF that we made a lot of news that was filed in, I want to say January 16th-ish. And there's 75 days. And my guess is it gets improved. Possibly they think maybe, okay, the name shouldn't have this word or something, but largely that, that'll probably just be approved after the 75 days are over. This is just such a different scene. I mean, these things have been sitting with the SEC now for like eight years. And um, I think it's a matter of just the, the new chairman coming in, um, Gary Gensler. He's a pretty much, uh, he knows a lot about crypto um, and also the staff. And I think uh, there's a couple commissioners that are already, I think, on board, like Hester Peirce. 
So I think it's just a matter of the SEC coming around. And then once they come around mentally, I, I imagine it, it will all happen pretty quickly. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm not in that bubble. I'm not a regulatory analyst. That's just my sense from, from talking to people and whatnot. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I think the Canada regulators just mentally got over it quick, faster than the U.S. did. And it seems like they have a habit of doing that. Do you think, I guess a follow-up then would be, um, do you think that uh, companies that actually moved to buy Bitcoin on balance sheet this past year played any in, will play any impact on pushing forward approval processes? Like, I mean, in, in theory, you know, you have the S&P 500, Tesla's in that index now. Yeah. Uh, Frank's reported several times that, you know, corporates are interested in buying Fortune 500 companies. Do you think that calculus uh, impacts potential to get approval? I do, because Hester Peirce said it, and she's a commissioner. I mean, there's only a couple of them, and I'm sure she told her colleagues, hey, the more – because it wasn't just Tesla. Wasn't there another company that essentially bought a lot of Bitcoin and became like a proxy for Bitcoin? Yeah, MicroStrategy. Yeah, right. So that that idea, she called this indirect ways to get Bitcoin, and the more of these indirect ways that come out, the more there's chance for for investors to get harmed. And she said the way – it shows there's a hunger for a more direct way, which would be an exchange-traded fund. So I think the more of these OTC products and companies becoming Bitcoin proxies, I would think that would continue to add pressure on the SEC because an ETF to me would be less of a possible experience problem for the investor. And now you've got more and more of these indirect ways. I, and that's the argument she made on a, I forget who did the, it was a TV show, was it CoinDesk? Have they, did they just start a TV show? Well, anyway, one of those. Yeah, it's, you, don't need to, you don't need to pay much attention. Are they to a it. competitor of yours? Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. You, you don't say the name Vanguard when you're at BlackRock, and you don't say the name CoinDesk here. I'm sorry. I, I said okay. Not really. <laughs> They're not necessarily a competitor. Okay. Well, anyway. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, she was on one of those shows, and. Uh, you should actually have her on this podcast. I think she'd be a good guest for you. But she was basically saying the same thing, yeah. that th- this trend was something that showed them that they probably need to get an ETF out to feed this demand. Got it. And then the last question I have, and I'll pass it to Frank, would be just on like, what what are you thinking on it? Like expected timelines? Like we, you mentioned Gensler's the new chairman and Esther Pierce has obviously uh, come out with pro favorable language. Um, but realistically, we're looking at, almost March, you know, Coinbase just filed their S1 or the SEC just released the S1. Um, they're going to do their direct listing. Just wondering what you think timeline is. Is it still on the table potentially for 2021 for an approval in the US or is this now a 22 story? Um, I think so. Uh, I, I was given the over under September 30th. Uh, it's a little ambitious, but then Dave Nadig, who, um, you know, he's smarter than me with all this, in my opinion, he said August. Um, so both of us seem pretty ambitious on this. There's a regulatory colleague in BI uh, who was a little less ambitious. He thought probably early 2022. But I think the timeline, he gets approved and this happens and then you'd file the 19 before and it could be 250 days. There's there's all these technical timelines. And if you add those up, it does look look like you could get to next year. However, I'm telling you, once it, once there's a mental shift, it could be expedited. And that's what I'm counting on. And I think that's what Dave is pricing in here a little bit is when you're ready, you're ready. And then at that point, you don't need the 250 days to respond. So um, that's why I think we're looking at end of this year. 
I, I could see another couple of months where the Bitcoin ETF in Canada trades at nice tight premiums. It sees some nice asset flows. It doesn't have any hacks or disruptions. And then they're ready to move. Ashlyn thinks you're wrong, I think. Is she listening in? Yeah. She is. She's she's whispering in her ears saying that she thinks you're wrong. Yeah, she's she's in my ear. Yeah, sorry. I don't, I wasn't sure if I should speak or not, um, but I have some background. I do most of the reporting on um, policy, regulatory, and uh, you know the possible BTC ETF approval in the U.S., so I've been following this story as well. Um, yeah, no, definitely very interesting, and I, I think there are a lot of people who are really bullish on 2021, and I, I've also heard a lot of people who say, you know, no way no way with all of those timelines that the SEC doesn't take the full cycle and really take its time. So, you know, I'm interested to see. Yeah. And I have, we have been giving odds on this for a number of years. And one year we gave it 20% odds. We were wrong. So any of the bullish odds we've had, we have been proven wrong. So to your point, I would caveat my prediction with that. Um, that said, the U.S. fault, the, the Canada ETF, I think is a new variable. I think the chairman is a new variable. And I think the assets going into these funds is a new variable. And as we mentioned, the companies buying Bitcoin, you got a big S&P 500 top 10 stock buying Bitcoin. And you've got a lot of more improvements on the custodial side and in terms of just big institutions. Those are all things that I'm just saying could add up to a something switches in their head mentally and they're ready, um, which would then blow away all that technical stuff. It could also be something they keep putting off. But, you know, how much assets are going to come into these OTC funds before they do something? I mean, they're already now at 30, 40 billion. That's a lot of money that could lose money quickly if and when they approve. So there is a cost to waiting longer and longer as well. So they almost have like a, a little bit of a um, opposing pressure where you're increasing the number mm. and amount of money in investors accounts that could get hurt in an OTC product the longer you delay. And I'm sure they know that. I want to take a moment to thank Kraken, our sponsor. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their staking service, which is industry leading. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20 percent each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. I want to pivot over to something else you've been paying a lot of attention to, which is the inflows, outflows, AUM growth of ARK, right? They're kind of obviously tied to the Bitcoin world through their large holdings in GBTC, but they're also a big holder in Tesla, which has been seeing a lot of action. Ryan's been really curious about this, so maybe he has a more specific question but before that, maybe just give like an oversight uh, and why you think it's important. What does that sort of like mean for the market or what does it like signal about this market right now? Yeah. So to me, the most important signal that you should get from ARK's growth is just the bifurcation of portfolios, the barbelling of portfolios. And I think what we're seeing is because it's not that ARK, uh, theme ETFs have gone on a big run. Anything that's very, very different than the index, because what we're seeing flow wise and anecdotally is that people are putting a big portion of their money into dirt cheap beta. That would be the boring Vanguard stuff. The stuff that is so boring, you have to have something more exciting. So you add in maybe a percentage of ARK ETFs 
potentially you just start trading on Robinhood. You know, you uh, do derivatives trading. That that's the kind of stuff that you're doing to keep yourself from touching the boring eighty percent. And people are starting to see, well, if I'm going to get the whole index at four basis points, why would I buy an active fund or a theme fund that largely holds the same stocks in the S&P, just in slightly different order? Let me go for something that's completely different. And ARK is the poster child for this. I mean, they foresaw this coming six years ago. That's why they're getting the money now. It wasn't like they uh, uh, was came in late. They had a vision of this. Kathy Wood even pitched this idea at Alliance Bernstein, and they weren't into it. Most big managers, it's not in their DNA to be this this concentrated and take big bets like this because they want to retain assets. And if you get crazy, sometimes advisors won't invest in you. So uh, tracking difference can be a double-edged sword. But if it works, it can attract a lot of money, and it has. Um, But the ARK ETF, if you were to compare the S&P 500 to that ETF, there's only a 1% overlap in the portfolios, which is pretty astonishing. So she was able to find all those stocks uh, that weren't in the S&P, mm. that weren't really in the FANG trade, and she was able to crush the S&P with it. And so investors are naturally going, well, that's perfect because I've already got the S&P covered. And here, let me go get, get these other stocks through her. She's even gone out and called herself a hedge to the S&P, which is kind of a brilliant marketing strategy because I think over the years, people have learned not to, if they're hot, that not to pitch themselves with, hey, my track record's great. I'm the number one performer because everybody knows that doesn't last. What she's saying is, I can't mm-hmm. promise you that, but I do know that I'm I'm a hedge from all those value trap names in the S and P, and that fits with her brand and also minimizes that that you might get disappointed if she goes through a rough stretch. And I think she's been pretty open that her strategy is one that we'll see correct you know corrections, and it, it could be it could be um, you know volatile as well. But she's become a sort of target as well because anytime you grow from you know three billion to 50 billion, you obviously people are watching you. And the fact that she did it as an active manager really just bucked like a bunch of trends. She's high cost, active, stock picking, all that stuff was supposed to be out of vogue. And she just sort of showed that there's yeah. this new blueprint for how to be active. But then there's some traditional active managers who I think feel like, well, she cheated a little bit. I'm not allowed to take those risks. And I don't know, maybe there's a little jealousy too of somebody just having success in, a, in an area where there's mostly outflows. But it's become somewhat of a controversial topic lately. And I even saw yesterday people kind of rooting for outflows. And yeah, so I don't know. It's Twitter can be a little rough. But I think generally speaking, yeah. when I talk to people privately, most people are like, yeah, I'm just really impressed with her success. She had a vision. She followed through with it. Good for her. Yeah. It's been insanely impressive. We've got um, Brett coming on the show in a few weeks, I think, or next week. So. Maybe you can join if you want. That'd be fun. Maybe we'll bring you back. Sure. <laughs> you know, I'm always happy to come on. Ryan's and- always too busy. Ryan's always too busy for me. So, <laughs> you know, maybe we just need to. I was pulling teeth getting him to Take come on to the this. side. Like, I got to look at the Coinbase S1. I got to look at the Coinbase S1. But yeah, to your point, Arc and Grayscale to me have been on a similar trajectory of just the shiny, we call it the shiny object lane. <laughs> and they have just dominated that lane. This is stuff that doesn't just beat the S&P by a couple percentage points, but it like laps it four times and <laughs> you can't take your eyes off of it. And that lane is getting bigger and bigger. And then of course there's the dirt cheap lane, which by the way, takes in four five, six times more flows every week than the shiny object lane where all the media is, you know, yeah. Vanguard took in, I don't know, something like 200 billion just with their ETFs alone last year. So even though we spend a lot of time on this stuff, 
the passive, low-cost, boring trend is still by far the bigger trend. Yeah. Ryan, anything you want to close us off with? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, Eric, we've been sharing your tweets internally um, just because how you've been contextualizing the historic flows that the products have seen and, and volume traded around the product, you know, relative to other well-owned stocks, tech stocks and big tech stocks. I'm curious what your thoughts are on potential risks of, of serious outflows on the momentum if, if something like that were to happen. You know, I think a couple of days ago we saw, I, I want to say, I think it was the biggest outflow the product has seen when it was down, you know, X number of percent when tech sold off. But I'm wondering, is there any downside to how quickly it's it's grown um, and in potential impacts on, on broader markets? Even more specifically, I guess, for, for the crypto names they own, right? So they own Grayscale's product. They own Silvergate. I imagine they're, they're going to own Coinbase at some point. Um, just wondering what kind of impacts they could have on broader markets. Yeah, there's a theory going around that she's now a risk to the whole market. Um, but... Okay, so I think when you grow that fast and you have any smaller mid-caps, certainly you're going to have an impact on the stocks. There's a couple names that she owns a lot in. I believe, I heard her on Bloomberg Radio the other day saying that there will be fewer and fewer names that she owns more than 15%. Like they're going to make adjustments. But that probably means, though, is she's going to move into some larger names. And I know that they've been using big unarchian names like Lockheed Martin and Google as cash management vehicles. Ones that are within the themes bounds, but obviously aren't that interesting. Ones that, uh, again, you'd, you'd own the S&P 500, uh, but give you beta to that theme perhaps. But um, that's one technique. They can do some cash and loo potentially. Um, but ultimately, a lot of outflows would obviously have a detrimental effect on the stocks that she owns heavy weights in. There's no doubt about it. Um, that's what would happen. That said, we're talking about a fund that every time there are outflows, they tend to come right back. I, I know anecdotally and from flows, just you know, sort of being a sort of tea leaf reader of the flows, you can see when there's a drop in arc, there are people ready to buy. So that, that will help, I think, maybe push a massive, as we call it, a bloodbath. Uh, down, it will kick that can down the road because there's dip buyers ready. And you saw it this week. And so I would say that. But I would say that you, know, you look at their small cap exposure, it's depleted. It used to be, I think, 10%. Now it's nothing. Some people will argue, well, that's because the small cap names she picked have gotten bigger. Sure. But is she now seeing no value in any small names? Uh, it's just something to watch. You know, When the uh, market cap sort of floats upwards away from small into mid and large, I think it's a sign of the flows. Um, that said, ARC as a, as a company, right, is uh, you know, $50 billion in ETF assets, and they are uh, maybe 65 in total assets because they do some, you know, SMAs. But the Fidelity Contra Fund alone, that's just one active mutual fund, is double that. So the size of ARC is tiny in the grand scheme of things. Um, it's just so hot and in the moment that it, that's what makes it unique right now. But like I said, um, active mutual funds have been bleeding cash for a long time. And on the equity side, they saw $500 billion in outflows last year. And I don't, it's weird. Nobody cares about that. I guess, well, maybe there's larger, larger cap names in there. But I think sometimes there's a little too much focus on her and not the bigger pieces of the pie. And I'm not sure why that is. I guess it's just the way that when someone gets hot in any part of the culture, you know, there's this like media coverage on the way up. And then there's like, oh, they got a target on their back. And she's kind of going through that. I mean, she is a classic rock star manager. And you get a lot of praise, but then you get some some critics and 
Um, I think she's in that mode. But if you're an investor, I think worrying about that downward spiral of outflows is a, is a risk. There's no doubt. But if that starts to happen, it probably means the whole market's imploding and everything's getting sold off. This used to happen with junk bond ETFs. I remember they'd be like all worried about the liquidity mismatch in junk bond ETFs. And we kept saying, look, uh, they're probably going to have bad days once in a while. And they did. But they're ultimately good tools. People will buy them again. And you know, you have to think to yourself, forget, pretend the ETF didn't exist. Would you own those stocks that she owns yourself? Mm. If you would, then there's really no problem. You, you're just an owner of the stock through her, and you just go all in. But the junk bond ETFs over the years, I think, proved the skeptics wrong in that they never had a, a real problem. They were able to manage themselves. And the beauty of ARK is that you can always trade the shares on an exchange. If she was a mutual fund, I know people say, well, if it's a mutual fund, she could close and cap off. And that, that probably would be nice, but she's not. But the upside of being an ETF, uh, an ETF over a mutual fund in this case is if there is a lot of like um, tug of war in her name, you can always just, it could be sold and traded on the exchange. Whereas a mutual fund that would have to be in this scenario where there's a huge sell-off, they'll have to sell those stocks. And they'll, you know, that's part of the issue with uh, a mutual fund. Same thing in the bond space. But with, with her, at least the shares can be traded on an exchange. But um, I can't deny that issue. I just think sometimes it's, I don't know, it's used as a way to sort of exercise maybe some deep-seated jealousy. And it's hard to tangle <laughs> who's really concerned about investors versus who's just like annoyed that she's popular. I, I, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Maybe there's a little of both. I can definitely relate to her on that one. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Eric, this has been such a great, fun conversation Appreciate the insights. Appreciate you breaking down for us all these recent developments across uh, the Canadian Bitcoin ETF landscape and the broader ETF landscape. Hope to talk to you again soon. Frank, it was a pleasure. And it was really great to see your mustache almost in person. Almost. One day. Thanks so much. Thank you.